Good afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, August 25th. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your jovial co-host today. And joining me, after what seems like, what, about a month, month and a half, is my good friend Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Well, welcome back for yourself, too, because it's uh, been a month and a half since we've worked together, but I think our viewers have seen each of us separately over that time. Yeah, and uh, Zach DeMeyer's done a great job filling in for both of us at various times. Uh, but we wanted to get back to our roots here because we've got a lot of stories on this week's rundown that we're definitely going to want to jump in on. So buckle up because it's going to be a fun one. And we're going to start off with uh, probably the new darling of our show. That would be our friends over at Intel because they have a big push going on to expand their foundry capabilities in the U.S. And guess what? It finally got a big win because they announced this week that the U.S. Department of Defense is going to be using those same fabrication facilities to produce the Rapid Assured Microelectronics Prototypes. And because it's the government, they have an acronym for it, and they're calling it RAMP. Um, that's going to be used in a lot of defense applications. Now, the RAMP program is specifically designed to encourage a lot of domestic chip production for a variety of needs, because the Department of Defense wants to know that those chips are being produced domestically just in case something happens with the places that they were getting them from before. Um, the entire book value of this agreement hasn't been disclosed because Department of Defense, but also Intel's got some pretty aggressive milestones that it has to hit in the next three years if it expects to be able to take full advantage of this program. Stephen, we've talked a lot about Pat Gelsinger wanting to kind of change the way that he does things at Intel. Is this proof positive that his bets are going to pay off? Well, it sure seems like it so far, and uh, this is a non-traditional way for a company to find success, but frankly, it's a pretty profitable way. In fact, if you look at uh, our Lord and Savior, Elon Musk, pretty much all of his businesses are based on federal money, and so why not have Intel be based on it too? So essentially, what the RAMP program does is it ensures that the Department of Defense will have access to semiconductors and semiconductor prototyping and production capability, uh, basically no matter what happens in the world. And that's pretty important. Um, in addition to Intel, we've also got IBM, Cadence, and Synopsys involved. And essentially, these American companies will ensure uh, with an American chip factory that uh, the American government, Department of Defense, can get access to processors. Um, honestly, uh, this is, the story here is not what it seems. Uh, essentially, the story here is uh, more of a government story than an Intel story, in my opinion. Uh, the government needed this. Uh, they got it. They got it from a bunch of trusted partners and um, Intel benefits. And frankly, in the long run, given the global chip shortage, I think we all kind of benefit from this because if we can decentralize uh, chip production, because it is radically centralized right now. And I think that that's the reason that we're seeing this global chip shortage is the fact that uh, you know the entire supply chain is basically one supply chain, one chain. If we can uh, decentralize that a little bit, I think that it's good for the entire, uh, the entire industry. And frankly, because chips are used everywhere, the entire world. Tom, uh, HPE had a bit of a reshuffling of their executive ranks last week. Uh, there's a new GreenLake Cloud Services Solutions Group headed by current Aruba COO Vishal Lal, which is focused on the SaaS offerings, uh, including uh, Esmeral, Lighthouse, and others. Uh, the bigger news, though, was the impending departure of the CTO of HPE, Kumar Srikanti. 
He was formerly the CEO of Blue Data, which was acquired in 2018, and a pretty impressive uh, company right there. Uh, whoever replaces Shikanti will be taking over uh, GreenLake platform development side of the house, as well as HPE uh, continues to bet on GreenLake and SaaS. Uh, what's your take on these moves, Tom? I love how they buried the announcement that the CTO was really leaving in amongst all of the other shuffling that's going on. So here's my guess on it, because we've already talked about the fact that Kirti and Partha and a lot of the, the Aruba leadership is kind of deciding that this is their time to go. I think that the reason for the departure of the Blue Lake CEO that was the CTO wasn't because he doesn't want to be the CTO anymore. I think it's because he doesn't want to run GreenLake. And the way that they structured this announcement, when you consider that they're kind of sending services to one side and sending development to the other, and they're giving development to the CTO, I think he saw the writing on the wall, or at least was given the book with the writing that was going to be on the wall and said, not my bag and decided to cash out. So this feels a lot like a restructuring that you would typically see inside of a company like, okay, we're not making cars anymore. We're going to be making, I don't know, refrigerators or something. You're cool with that, right? Well, if you're a car guy, no, you're not. So you're going to be departing. And let's be fair. If he's been the CTO at HPE for a while, dude can pretty much go wherever he wants. So good luck to him. I think what we're going to see then is a lot of realignment with people internally to jump right up and say, okay, this is where we're going. You can get on board with that, or we will find you a nice little parachute to jump off at the, the next stop or something like that. That's not a bad thing. And, and we've seen this over and over again in so many companies where the former leadership has this idea that they want to change things a little bit, but they're not fully committed to it because they still have those old ways of doing things or those old things they want to hang on to. This is clearing the decks. If you're not on board with GreenLake in some form or fashion, this is not the place you want to be. And so that means there's a lot of good talent that's going to be out in the, in the workforce pretty soon. But it also means that HPE is going to be a leaner driven company that absolutely is focused on making this happen. So good luck. I hope that this pays off well for you. And I hope that in six months that this story is pretty much a non-issue because HPE is doing well and, and our friend uh, Srikanthi is uh, doing great at whatever company he lands in. Um, Stephen, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy just announced that they have a new 44 petaflop exascale computer that they're calling Polaris. The news comes as a surprise because Argonne Labs was already working on an exascale supercomputer known as Aurora. Hmm. The addition is explained by a switch in suppliers. AMD and NVIDIA will be powering this new Polaris supercomputer, which will come online well before these long-delayed Intel Xeon-powered uh, Aurora uh, systems come online. Once again, we have to kind of ding Intel because it's their failure to meet deadlines that's presenting an opportunity for their competitors. And given how long the timelines are on these things, we have to ask, is this something that Bob Swan was in charge of before Pat Gelsinger took over? Stephen, what do you think about this? Well, this is absolutely a Swan era failure for Intel. Um, just uh, for background, I mean, Aurora was supposed to be built <laughs> using uh, Intel's uh, next generation Xeon Sapphire Rapid CPUs. Uh, those were delayed and delayed and delayed. And um, the XE GPUs, uh, which are delayed, <laughs> delayed and coming now. Uh, the bottom line is that Intel was unable to supply 
the processors that form the heart of the Aurora supercomputer. And instead, uh, what Argonne is going to do is build a replacement out of something that is available. And in fact, if you look under the hood, uh, this new Polaris supercomputer is kind of unimpressive, even though it's going to be one of the top 15 supercomputers in the world. It's built out of Apollo, HPE Apollo uh, Gen 10 Plus systems, uh, which are really kind of cool. They're liquid cooled, um, which makes them cool. Um, it also, uh, but it, it uses conventional AMD uh, Epic CPUs. In fact, it doesn't even use the latest ones. It's using Rome uh, CPUs. So basically a whole bunch of 32 core Epics um, uh, aggregated across 40 racks with NVIDIA A100 GPUs. Uh, essentially, this is nothing you couldn't build a node of in your garage uh, for you know less than the cost of a used car. Um, the whole thing is bound together with the Slingshot 10 uh, fabric from HPE. Um, and uh, it's going to be rolled out pretty quickly because, of course, all these parts are, I don't say widely available, but at least available. Um, it's going to be upgraded, though. Uh, in March, they're going to switch out uh, the Epic uh, ROM CPUs for Epic Milan CPUs, which are you know, quite a bit faster and more energy efficient. Uh, they're also going to be upgrading the fabric to Slingshot 11 at that point, which interestingly enough is the same fabric that uh, Aurora was supposed to use. And frankly, um, they're still claiming that they're buying the Aurora computer and that H uh, or uh, that Intel will be, be there with it. I have no doubt that they will. And I have no doubt that Mr. Gelsinger, who we just talked about a few minutes ago, is currently banging on the door of whoever's office it was to supply these things saying, what happened here? And making sure that it ain't gonna happen again. Tom, if you wanted a good reason to patch critical exploits as soon as possible, look no further than this story from back in 2020. A bug affecting Citrix application delivery controllers was announced mid-December 2019. The patch for this issue was uh, just uh, over a month later, but active exploits continue to take place as early as January 8th and all the way throughout the year. One organization that was targeted is the US Census Bureau. The organization was under attack on January 13th, just after the exploit came out, and they took almost two weeks to find out that they were even being attacked. The intruders were able to create a rogue admin accounts and get a foothold, uh, but apparently they were unable to deploy enough backdoors to get in uh, with their new privileges. The affected servers have been patched by now, but this just highlights the vulnerabilities of government agencies that we've heard about over the past few weeks. Tom, could the Census Bureau have done anything more to stop this? Could they have? Well, that's a good question. Would they have? Probably not. I mean, if you look back probably about six, seven weeks ago in the rundown, we had a big story about how the uh, US federal government got like a really crappy report card about cybersecurity. And that's nothing new if you've ever worked in the government. And if you thought your local municipal government or your post office or your schools or any of those things were slow, welcome to the federal government where everything has to be wrapped in three layers of red tape before it ever even gets looked at. And I think that that's exactly what this is. The Census Bureau, honestly, is one of those things that nobody cares about until the last year before the turn of a decade, the new year of the decade, and then they go to sleep for nine more years. So it's no surprise that they probably are running on shoestring budgets and things like that. And the fact that they probably weren't even paying attention when they got hacked should tell you that they don't have the right controls in place. Could they? Yes, but it's going to require a big audit. It's going to require a whole bunch of finger pointing 
probably some congressional hearings. But the other fact of the matter is, is that if they'd have had some controls in place to notice that people were dropping admin accounts in their system, even if they didn't know what was causing it, they could have stopped it. And it could just be dumb luck that they didn't get a whole bunch of back doors dropped on them too. Maybe their systems were too old. But this just highlights the fact that we live in a world now where discovery of an exploit to POC to active exploiting can take a matter of days and even the best patching process in the world is still going to take a week or two, as we saw here. I mean, if you'd have told me it took Citrix a month to roll out this patch, I honestly would have probably said, well, that was pretty good. That was a reasonable amount of time to patch something like this. But obviously it wasn't because look how quickly they were exploited. And we're going to see this repeated over and over and over again. I just thought that this story was important to highlight simply because it's the Census Bureau and we're seeing more and more government targets getting picked on because they're so slow to react. Don't be surprised if we don't see something coming up soon. All right, Stephen, we just got a good glimpse at some of the cool things that Nginx is working on because they just held their Sprint 2.0 event. Now, as a reminder, uh, Nginx is now owned by F5 and they have reiterated their commitment to open source. They're not just committing to keeping their world beating web server open and free, but they're also supporting a lot of other open source projects all across the spectrum, which is something you absolutely want to see from a company that says they champion open source. But how does this differ from companies that say they support open source and then maybe don't put quite the same actions behind the words? Stephen, you were a big part of what was going on at Nginx Sprint. Tell us what you saw. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And full disclosure, uh, Nginx hired uh, Tech Field Day and me to uh, react in real time to the Sprint announcements. And uh, But they didn't give us any guardrails, and we could react in any way we want. And let me tell you, we were uh, actually pretty surprised and impressed by the fact that they led the discussion with a talk, a conversation about open source. Uh, this is not what you expect from a lot of kind of open source companies that become for-profit businesses that get bought by bigger for-profit businesses. You know, a lot of those will use the open source as kind of like a demo product or a, uh, you know, a gateway drug to the real deal. And it would have been really easy for Nginx to basically say, okay, well, that's the web server. And over here is all the stuff that we're going to focus on and just let the web server languish and kind of forget about open source entirely. But instead, and, and, and frankly, we were worried about that. We were super worried about that. But instead, what we saw is uh, they led off the Sprint discussion with a talk about the web server. They talked about how important it is to uh, not just global like website services. I mean, hello, it's uh, powering. There's probably two or three Nginx instances between you and this video, let alone every website we run at the Gestalt IT. Um, and, and frankly, uh, it's also used now as part of modern application delivery. And in fact, it was revealed that Nginx is the number one container component. In other words, more containers contain that web server to do something. And, and that's important because, you know, you've heard of microservices and APIs. Well, all those are just fancy web servers. Service mesh, fancy web server, they're all just fancy web servers and fancy proxies. And that's basically what Nginx is used for. And it's used everywhere. So that's why it was important that, like I said, Nginx, the first thing they said was we're committed to open source. We are recommitting. We're, don't, we're putting our money where our mouth is. And, and there was a couple of specific things that they said. Number one, that they're going to 
have open source projects that do most of the things that their paid products do. In other words, if you like the cool stuff they're working on, much of that will still be available to open source users like us instead of paying enterprise customers. I mean, essentially the thing that the enterprise customers are paying for is support and also advanced integration with things like surprise F5. So, so that's one of the things that they're doing. The other thing they're doing is they're actually putting their money where their mouth is by funding developers that are going to support some of these open source projects. And I think that that's really critical too, because in the open source world, it's kind of a, um, you know, a secret that we don't like to talk about a lot, that frankly, a lot of projects are just poorly maintained. They don't have the ongoing commitment from uh, you know, leaders and, and who can blame them? I mean, you're not getting paid to do it. You probably have a day job. You know, you're probably distracted. So Nginx is an F5 are actually going to be paying to support uh, the pro a lot of other open source projects. Now, of course, these are ones that leverage and benefit Nginx, but they're also ones that leverage are leveraged by and benefit lots of people who aren't their customers. Anyway, for me, that was the big takeaway. And I have to say that all of the delegates uh, from that event came away super impressed. That's great, Stephen. And I really, as someone who is a fan of open source software, I love to see people effectively put their money where their mouth is, even if it's something that's free. And I look forward to hearing more great things from Nginx as we roll forward. And of course, if you want to check out some of the coverage of the event and some of the reactions from our delegates at Tech Field Day, make sure you head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash techfieldday and check those videos out. All right, Stephen, we had a couple of stories that uh, came up that I think deserve a little bit of a closer look. So we're going to dive into those right now because one of them is one of our favorites. It's that proposed merger of NVIDIA and ARM. Well, a merger, no, really, it's just NVIDIA buying ARM. Um, and we've been talking about this for a long time. But now it appears that some of the regulatory agencies are starting to weigh in. And that's not good news for fans of the deal because the Competition and Markets Authority of the United Kingdom has expressed concerns about the deal due to potential harm to NVIDIA, NVIDIA competitors. And if you speak British English, expressed concern is like category five problems. The thinking now is that NVIDIA could potentially restrict access to ARM chips or related products that helps reduce competition. Hmm, who would have ever thought that might've happened? Now, to be fair, NVIDIA did propose a remedy to this situation. And it was resoundly rejected by the CMA because now they not only rejected the remedy, they said, we're going to take a more in-depth look at what's going on here, which is just going to slow everything down. Now, Stephen, you have been on the side of the fence that this deal will not happen, that this is not going to be a thing, and it will eventually get blocked because of issues just like this. Do you think the CMA is the group that's going to manage to pull it off? Oh, the CMA isn't going to block it. Uh, finally, it's China. And uh, the CMA is effectively here. Oh, God, this sounds horrible to say. The United Kingdom government is acting as a proxy for the Chinese government. Now, uh, truly, truly, it, it, this is just what the Chinese are going to say, except the Chinese are going to be a lot more emphatic about it. Instead of no, it's going to be hell no. And frankly, that's where we're going to be. There is no way this deal is happening. I've been saying since the day it was announced, this isn't happening. And I remain committed to that proposal. This is not going to happen. There's no way NVIDIA buys ARM. Um, the only way this deal happens with a face-saving measure is if we get some way for NVIDIA to 
kind of partly control arm or something, you know, maybe they end up, um, you know, uh, becoming a majority shareholder as part of a consortium or something like that. I just don't see it happening. Um, the bottom line is if the UK is concerned about this, China is doubly concerned because effectively everything in China uses ARM cores and ARM licenses. And although the deal allegedly would protect all that, you know, there's no protecting against tanks and planes, as I've said in the in the past. I mean, you know, if the United States government decided that a United States company like NVIDIA could not export IP to China, which, oh, let me think, that happens all the time, then 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 that's that's the ball game. And that's the ball game for kind of everything China makes. It's not going to happen. There's no way China allows this thing to happen. And um, frankly, there's no way the UK wants it to happen either, because frankly, right now, the UK is still a big part of the global IP, you know, chip business. And, um, you know, if this stuff gets moved to California, well, they're out of that too. So anyway, that's just, that's just all I got to say. It's not happening. And if you want further proof, there's two other little factoids in here. Number one, uh, the NVIDIA was really late in submitting their documentation to the Chinese uh, Mofcom. Uh, in, in fact, they only submitted it last month. And, and then Mofcom requires a certain amount of time to examine this stuff and, and come to a conclusion. That time window is actually outside the window of the merger. I kid you not. So in other words, they submitted their homework so late that it's going to come in past the grading period. That it's just not. It's just not going to go through. The other two things that I think are important here is, boy, Brexit kind of screwed this up because now NVIDIA can't appeal to the EU because that's not a thing anymore. So you're stuck with whatever the UK decides. The second thing is, is that we've seen over the last few years this rubber stamping idea that the regulatory bodies are just going to do whatever the companies do, say. All I have to do is mention T-Mobile and Sprint. And when you think about the fact that the CMA resoundly rejected the remedy of, well, what are you going to do if you suddenly decide you want to cut everybody out of the action? Because we saw that with T-Mobile and Sprint. T-Mobile swore they were not going to shut down the Sprint network for a certain number of years, that they were going to continue to provide service for everybody. And as soon as the thing cleared, and as soon as it, they were able to do it, guess what happened? They did exactly what everybody said they were going to do, because it turns out business is only in business for itself. And so I think that the CMA finally dug their heels in here and said, you know what? We don't believe you. Fool me once, shame on me. We're not going to get to twice. So NVIDIA either has to really put up if they want this to happen, or they're going to have to write off all the stuff that they've been doing so far. And let's be fair, as we've discussed previously, they're buying this with money that basically appeared out of nowhere because of all this stock market craziness that's going on. And there's no way that they can put more money into this to make the problem go away. So they're kind of stuck. They're either going to have to give up something they really want, or they're going to have to give up enough control to make this merger happen. And quite honestly, I don't see either of those things happening. So yeah, as optimistic as I might have been at the beginning, I think we're starting to see the brakes getting put on heavily here. So I would not be surprised to see this either fall apart because someone says no, or NVIDIA quietly pulls out and says, it's not worth it to us anymore. Yeah. In fact, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I might think that maybe NVIDIA made this whole offer just to delay someone else buying ARM, <laughs> you know, just to keep ARM off the market. But again, I, I don't want to put on any tinfoil hats here. Um, 
So um, let's let's change the subject a little bit, Tom. You know, you know what we haven't talked about yet. Um, oh wait, ransomware? No, no, no. How about security exploits? Here we go. Um, researchers at Mnemonic Labs found a new bug in TLS security, which let me just tell you guys, this is really super bad. This is a bad, bad news story. Anyway, sorry, sidebar. Okay, um, so last week they found this bug and it affects uh, a lot of different TLS providers. Uh, the exploit takes advantage of the server name identifier uh, filtering system. And it, using a special tool, attackers can exfiltrate data through SSL hello packets. This is a super weird bug because even if the server is on a block list from a reputation or a policy block that the hello packets are still exchanged, and um, this allows attackers to put data where it shouldn't be. While the linked article headline specifically mentions Cisco, because hello, let's pick on Cisco, the researchers found that the vulnerability was in Palo Alto, Fortinet, and F5 gear too. Uh, there's no timeline to fix it right now, but the proof of concept is already out in the world and the clock is ticking. Tom, is this just a clever hack or is this a big deal? Um, this is a big deal of a clever hack because I think it's starting to show that security researchers realize that there are better ways to get data out through devices that we're not seeing. I mean, how many times in a movie have we seen someone sneak an iPod into a secure facility and plug it in and download all the files? Oh, wait, that wasn't a movie. We actually had a couple of people do that for real. Um, and this is effectively the software version of that. So, yes, in the article, uh, it talks about basically... The servers will exchange hello packets for you know server name identification purposes. The problem is, is that you can cram a lot of data into a hello packet because it's essentially padded anyway. And so what they're seeing is, and I've seen this before from Palo Alto because they've seen the same thing happen with DNS requests uh, with a, a uh, exploit called oil rig where you can cram a whole bunch of data into a dns request and you can constantly query that dns server and the next thing you know when you reassemble all the packets on the other side you have every piece of data that you wanted to get out of the company it's a trivial thing to fix if you know how to fix it which is essentially if the server's on a block list don't let it exchange any packets at all but the problem is is that right now there's no way to enforce that because who would ever want to stop me from doing that well i don't know overly conspiracy theory oriented security researchers. So yeah, this this needs to be fixed and we need to fundamentally re-examine how we examine things. We are really good at doing deep packet inspection on payload packets. We never do deep packet inspection on hello packets because it raises latency and a whole bunch of other stuff. But people are getting super creative and I think it might be time for us to start realizing that if you don't want things to be snuck out underneath your nose, maybe you need to start looking down your nose a little bit more. Yeah, I think that um, one of the confusing aspects of this story, though, is that it seems to be a breach, and it sounds like it, but it kind of isn't. It kind of is something different. It's a different kind of security exploit. And so I think that, um, you know, initial uh, reports were TLS hacked. Later reports are, you know, oh, it's something somewhat different. So anyway, I think that to me, that's the big thing that I wanted to call out here. This thing is a big deal, uh, mainly for what you mentioned there at the end, Tom, which is the fact that it isn't effectively blocked, not that it's a big deal because it's exposing all of our data. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I think we're gonna be seeing a lot more of um, going forward. Something else we're gonna be seeing a lot more of is some of the news that we're, we've got coming out of the Hot Chips Conference this week. Now, Stephen, you are our resident chip expert around here. Um, and so I wanted you to kind of react to some of these big announcements. 
Um, we are indebted to our friends over at Serve the Home who provided a lot of great coverage from this event. So all of the articles that you're going to see uh, in link in the show notes come from them. Um, but first up is Intel because they're going to be focusing on risk architecture for their data processing card, which is confusingly called an IPU instead of a DPU because Intel. The so-called Mount Evans IPU packs an ARM Neoverse in one core with P4 programming from our friends over at Barefoot, now a part of Intel. And this is in contrast to that exotic FPGA-based card that you see on the market, which packs an Intel Xeon D. So, Stephen, Intel's jumping in with an IPU. Yeah, Intel, uh, so this is, I'm gonna call it the DPU market, even though like half the competitors in the market refuse to use that space. So uh, again, uh, massive kudos, Patrick Kennedy, we love you, serve the home, we love your coverage. Thank you for covering this uh, so, so well. Go to their site and check it out. Um, one of the things that they did is they put together sort of a, uh, a spectrum <laughs> of processor offload cards, it's easy to look at these uh, processor offload engines and say, oh, well, that's just like a TCP offload engine. We've had that for 20 years, you know? No, 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 no. This thing, it's a, it's a computer. It's a computer on a card. If you were excited about NVIDIA Grace, which packed a computer onto a GPU card, then you should be excited about DPUs because they do the same thing. Effectively, uh, you've got a network card and the network card has a, not just a, a processor, but a kind of badass processor. I mean, you've got the ability to do serious processing. Um, as I said, or as Tom just said, uh, one of Intel's uh, IPU cards actually has a Xeon D, which is the processor that probably powers your storage array. Um, it also has, uh, they also have that one and another one with an FPGA, so you can kind of run anything on it. Uh, Serve the Home calls those exotic offload cards, which I totally am on board for because they are pretty exotic. Um, there's also smart NICs, which are sort of less capable, but but here in the middle in this DPU space, we've got competitors, you know, of course, uh, NVIDIA's Mellanox um, with their Bluefield. These are really, really high powered things. Marvell is in there. Uh, the, the Intel one is interesting because uh, they're using ARM cores. Hello. Uh, they've got a, like, uh, and they're not just using the regular ones either. Remember the Neoverse N1 is ARM's high performance core. So effectively, they've got this offload card packed to the gills with a low power, high performance processor that can do all sorts of cool things. And, and, and what cool things, you ask? Well, probably the coolest off the shelf thing is plug one of these things into vSphere and all the NSX code that does all their cool networking stuff uh, will run on the card. Another thing they're talking about doing is, uh, you know, having it become kind of a diskless uh, storage uh, node to boot servers from uh, having, you know, distributed storage running on these cards. Companies like Pensando and Fungible are looking at doing things like that. And Intel's right there too. So uh, this stuff is really cool. Uh, Intel is actually doing a really nice job with this. And frankly, I got to give kudos to our friends at Barefoot, which was acquired by Intel because their work was so solid that it is basically the, the foundation upon which Intel's offerings are built. Uh, using the P4 programming language, which again, you haven't heard of P4, uh, you should. You're, it, it's, it's important. It's an important programming language for uh, software-defined networking, and um, it's very, very capable. So, so that's kind of the summary of the Mount Evans DPU coming out of Intel, which is their signature DPU. Oh, I'm sorry, IPU card. 
All right. Well, uh, friends over at Esperanto said Salutan and showed off a Risk Accelerator card that packs an amazing 6,558 Risk Five cores into a single Glacier Point Open Compute slot. I did double check that number just to be sure it was right, and yes, it is 6,500 cores. Um, each of these feature a custom vector tensor instruction set with its own DRAM. Now, amusingly, these are all called minions. They live in a neighborhood as part of a minion shire in a mesh network on the chip. Now, Stephen, this sounds bananas. It kind of is bananas. Um, so, so let's remind you, the the the, the readers or viewers. Uh, so, Risk Five is uh, basically a competitor to ARM. It's an open source computing platform. It is a, a risk computing platform like ARM. It is entirely open source. Uh, you can you can build your own Risk Five CPU if you have the wherewithal. Uh, you don't. Um, and essentially, there's companies out there working on um, better and better Risk Five CPUs. So far, the architecture has mainly been used by disk drive ma makers uh, for disk drive controllers because it turns out they don't need all that you know, crank and ARM uh, processing power. And uh, it's way cheaper to use an open source core instead of uh, paying ARM royalties. But RISC-V is also appearing in general purpose computing. We just saw a very, very cool proof of concept with a bootable RISC-V Linux computer uh, demonstrated recently. And now uh, we're starting to see these processor cores appear elsewhere. Esperanto is essentially not really using RISC-V much at all. In fact, they're using the low power, um, cheapy, easy cores here for these 6,558 RISC-V cores, um, because what they're doing is, is the core is kind of like a sidecar for the important stuff, which is their custom uh, vector tensor processing instructions. So essentially, you know, the whole, um, I don't know, you remember like, like when Intel had like the math instructions, like the SIMD and all that kind of stuff, uh, MMX, all that. Essentially, they're only using that part of the RISC-V core. The, the regular part is just sort of processing instructions and doing IO and stuff. Um, but that being said, so it's not just 6558 RISC-V cores, it's 6558 vector tensor instruction processing units, which are super cool. The other super cool thing is that they all have their own DRAM, which has been a big problem in AI processing. Remember, hey, I'm utilizing AI guys, so I kind of study this stuff. And uh, that's a big problem. It's a big problem to have memory be far away from the processors. It's a big problem to figure out how to get enough bandwidth in there. It's a big problem, if you can believe it, to get the memory kind of weaving through the chip all the way through to get to the processor that it needs to get to. A lot of latency there, and that slows down performance. So having DRAM right in there really, really helps. And you know what else helps? Calling it a freaking minion shire. Boom. That's as good as uh, Firefly Space having the name of their rocket engine be the Reaver. Seriously. Geek points. Hey, I'm all about geek points. Speaking of which... Cerebrus, not the three-headed dog that guards the gates to the underworld, but it's a chip company that is famous for using an entire silicon wafer as a single massive chip. They have these big rack-sized chassis. The wafer scale engine, two packs, have 2.6 trillion transistors, 850,000 AI-optimized processing cores, and 40 gigs of on-chip memory. Their new Memory X module boasts up to 2.4 petabytes of RAM and flash. Steven, I'm going to order four of these for my house. You're totally cool with that, right? Oh, sure. Have fun with it. Yeah. Um, I hope that you're also an accomplished uh, AI programmer because guess what? 
these things are insane. No kidding. There's actually a picture that they that they gave uh, showing a woman holding one of these cerebrus wafers. It is bigger than um, I don't know. It's big. It's it's like the size of a record album. If you remember those, those existed. Uh, bigger than a CD. If you remember those, those existed too. Um, it is incredible. Essentially, they're taking an entire silicon wafer. Uh, the whole thing is a computer, not just uh, a processor or a bunch of cores. It's a bunch of cores and memory and I.O. and all that kind of stuff. So think about what I just said about Esperanto and then take that and put it into a single chip and have that single chip be a computer. Nobody's done this because it is freaking nuts. But Cerebrus is doing it and it kind of works. And the reason that it kind of works is that they're kind of clever and so, for example, they have extra cores in case one of the cores has an error in it. They can like kind of seal that guy off and uh, and use a different one. Uh, they've got a really, really smart way of organizing the cores and the matrix. And the most important thing, though, is that they've got software to go with it to help make sure that all of this stuff is usable. Uh, the one thing that Cerebrus can do that nobody else can do is just massive, massive AI models. That's one of the things we talk about on utilizing AI is the growth of AI models, and they're getting huge. Cerebrus can now pack, um, for example, all of GPT-3, which is this big AI model, uh, into basically a, a single chip uh, with this memory offload thingy, which kind of looks like an all-flash storage array to me. Um, essentially what they can do is they can pack virtually unlimited amounts of memory to go along with the virtually unlimited amounts of processing power, because you can tie these things together. You can have, oh, uh, 850,000 cores isn't enough for you. How about 1.6 million? How about 3.2 million cores? Is that enough for you? How about, you know, oh, I don't know, two petabytes of memory to feed the thing. It's, it's just nuts and it's super cool. And if you're a geek, um, you know, geek out about Minion Shire, but also geek out about a, a processor that's an entire chip. Lastly, I want to talk about Samsung because they are kind of becoming a bigger story all over the place because they're uh, going to start packing processors into memory modules. Their Aquabolt XL packs a stripped down RISC-32 processor into a high bandwidth memory module for compute offload. Now, I remember how big of a deal it was when Intel came out with 3D Crosspoint that later became Optane, which was their um, memory resident storage. Now, Samsung says, you know what? We're just going to do it with processors. What's the advantage here? What, what's Samsung hoping to do? Yeah, this again, this is similar to what we heard about Esperanto in that um, and NVIDIA Grace and the DPUs and all that in that um, moving all stuff back and forth between memory is a challenge and it introduces latency and it slows, slows performance. And frankly, what Samsung is doing here is equivalent to what Intel is doing with their IPU or what Esperanto is doing with their RISC accelerator, essentially putting the chips, uh, they're the processing and the memory really close together. And it's important to note, this is not a CPU on a memory module. This is a very specific um, uh, IPU. <laughs> you know, it's a special purpose processing unit. Effectively, all it is is a 16-bit uh, floating point multiplier and adder that sits in memory. But the cool thing is, effectively, if you've got software that can use it, you can multiply and add in memory with full, full bandwidth uh, directly next to the RAM chips and just do all that processing over there as an offload to the main processor that's doing whatever the main thing does. And these are very useful chips, uh, very useful instructions for AI machine learning processing. 
And frankly, they're going to be, you know, faster than lightning uh, when doing those specific tasks over there. The other thing that's going on here is that Samsung is a big proponent of HBM high bandwidth memory. The problem with HBM is that constructing it costs easily 25% to 50% more than constructing regular memory. So you get more bandwidth, you get lower latency, but you've got to engineer the thing to use it and the chips are super expensive. Um, in fact, at retail, they're like probably twice as expensive as regular memory. And so not a lot of people are using HBM. So I think Samsung is hoping that by adding this additional functionality there, which kind of doesn't cost a lot in terms of chip real estate, maybe they'll find a new market for this because so far HBM is pretty much only used on GPUs and uh, maybe in the future, somebody's going to be equipping servers with this and maybe that'll ramp up production enough to, you know, offset the cost. Yeah, well, there's, that's a lot of news, Stephen, and I thank you very much for your expert analysis of it, because I know that there's a lot going on. And like I said, you can tune in to serve the home because they've had a lot of great coverage of it. And I'm sure that we're going to be talking about a lot of these advances going forward uh, as stories in the rundown. Speaking of which, the rundown happens every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time. So make sure that you've tuned in and checked us out. Um, we've got a lot of great coverage of a lot of cool things happening in the industry over on our website at gestaltit.com if you're not already there. If you want to consume things in a little bit more of a video format, you can always go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. Or you can, you can subscribe to this as a podcast if you'd prefer to get your news after the fact when you're on your run or you're possibly, you know, making dinner or something like that. Just uh, point your favorite podcast application to Gestalt IT and you can get the rundown feed. Um, Steven, there's a lot of cool things coming up. So why don't you give everybody a real quick overview of what you're working on uh, with things? <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I'll just uh, be quick here. A couple things. Number one, uh, go watch the videos of the Tech Field Day delegates uh, from Nginx Sprint. Um, we're not going to, we, we don't have any presentation or anything. It's just the delegates analysis. And like I said, these this is completely wide open, um, open floor. And it was really, really insightful analysis. So if you go to YouTube slash Tech Field Day, you'll see those videos be posted. Actually, they're not posted quite yet, but they'll be posted real soon. And you'll be able to hear what they thought about the Nginx announcements. And then next week, we're back with Tech Field Day. So uh, do tune in uh, Wednesday and Thursday for Tech Field Day next week. Awesome. And uh, don't forget to check out my newest conversation on our YouTube channel where I compare Wi-Fi 6E to IPv6. Um, I'm already fielding lots of podcast requests from IPv6 folks who I think want to take me to task for my embracing of the protocol. So um, I'll be sure to highlight those as they come up. But I'll be back next week along with Stephen on the rundown to discuss some more great news of the week. Um, until next Wednesday, I hope that you all have a good week. Take care of yourselves and we will see you very soon.